Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And onto this, Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. still holding down five jobs and we finally finished moving into our new house we carried a treadmill up two flights of stairs yesterday and i'm fine because i was mostly serving as a spotter but my husband threw out his back so um that's you know for for all of you who ever endeavor to carry a treadmill up the stairs up two flights of stairs perhaps uh, tricks that work. If you wrap a strap around the bottom of it and then put the strap on your shoulder, you can do a lot more lifting from your shoulder than you can with your back. <laughs> so uh, word of the wise, uh, you can also look up tips for moving pianos and that's pretty useful for moving a treadmill. But um, yeah, totally random unrelated update. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not totally unrelated because nothing, you know, this movie made me feel so out of shape. Like I literally <laughs> watched it on an exercise bike, biking the entire movie, right? Not, not a hard biking, <laughs> slow pedaling, but I slow pedaled the whole movie because, you know, I'm a nerd. I need to get to the gym more often. I haven't been to the gym since COVID. Like the gym kind of pissed me off, but I, I haven't been back to the gym since then. And I need to get, you know, every week I pass this, this gym called Crom Fitness, C-R-O-M <laughs> Fitness with like a helmet and like the horns and everything. And I'm like, that's badass. Maybe I need to join that gym, you know, but, you know, being the nerd that I am, I, I got accused by my friends of being not a nerd because I was too good at Ultimate Frisbee when we were in college or something like that. But today on the show, we've got someone who who we've given a little flack for in the past for for like not qualifying as a nerd for being into jujitsu and all this manly stuff. And and like, uh, you know, he's got like a website, Neil to no one. And I'm like, OK, if we're going to do Conan, this is the perfect person for it. Right. So his name is Anthony Tank Mansfield. And he hosts a podcast called What You Into. It's uh, a weekly podcast dedicated to deep diving into people's hobbies and collections. The latest one I listened to was about exotic animal collecting. Um, so he goes down to this rabbit hole with his guests that leads to strange educational and funny conversations. It's pretty cool. I'm a pretty big fan of the show. Some of the theme collections that he's done that our listeners might be interested in is in episode 64, the slasher greatest of all time, the slasher goat with Jamie. Do you say it? Filer, I guess. Yeah. 
Yep, Jimmy Filer. Jimmy Filer. Haley Filer and Justin 3000 Stewart, a Friday the 13th collection. Talking Saw with Paul. Uh, that's Paul Gonzalez, and they that was the Saw collection. And um, episode 68, The Future's Not Set with Cody Hucker from the Bastard Sermon podcast. And that was the Terminator-themed collection. And, of course, I should plug, there's an upcoming episode featuring yours truly. We talked about podcasting. We did. I have no memory of this because, like, Tank lives in Cincinnati, and that's where my family is. And when I came home to visit my family, my dad just started plying me with all this, like, craft beer from Cincinnati that I can't get here. And so I had pre-gamed the show. Then I get out there, and then we got to have drinks with his wife, Lauren, and then we have to have more beers. And, like, I didn't, it wasn't even... able to finish all the beer. So I was like, I'm going to go on the show and I'm going to be great and witty and everything. And like, I was just probably too plastered. I don't know. I have very little memory of the show. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tank's also an accomplished illustrator who organized this, this thing called Six Bomb Boards. It's like a live art group that creates drawings in public spaces and events. And when he isn't podcasting or drawing, he can be found hanging out in that same basement with Lauren and their French bulldog Jet, who often makes unscheduled appearances on the podcast. Uh, that's my favorite part of the show. Every time there's like, they'll be in the middle of talking something intense, and then suddenly there's like, Jet, Jet, stop it. <laughs> Sorry, listener. And it's like, and then there's this break, and then it comes back. <laughs> Please welcome to the show, Anthony Tank Mansfield. Hey, what's Welcome. going on, everybody? How's it going? What's happening? Glad you're with us. Yeah, stoked to be here. I'm, I'm, we get to talk uh, back-to-back uh, Conan flicks today. This is going to be pretty cool. I'm stoked about this. I was, it was a fun rewatch of both those films this week. So, yeah. Before we get into that, I've got a little bit of housekeeping to do here, namely correcting the record. On our second anniversary show, we, we referred to the recipe with the gaffy stick garnish as worms in the dirt. That was actually a dessert from the Dune show. The Tuscan Raider recipe was actually a drink. That was black melon milk, which we got off the official Star Wars website. Today, we're going to be talking about Conan the Barbarian. We are part history podcast, so I want to give a little background to the sword and sorcery genre. In September of 1927, aspiring writer Robert E. Howard submitted a story called The Shadow Kingdom about a barbarian from Atlantis to horror magazine Weird Tales. And they bought it and they published it two years later. It blended horror with elements of action, fantasy, historical, romance, mythology, and sword fighting. And it blended all those things into a new subgenre that flourished for a while in the pre-war period before it sort of died out to the P.I. noir detective genre. Then it started to get revived in the 60s. In May of 1961, fanzine Amra published a letter to the editor by fantasy novelist Michael Moorcock suggesting that epic fantasy be used for the subgenre name. If there's one thing nerds do, like we were just talking about, it's argue. So in 1961, in July, 
in Amra, another writer in the genre, Fritz Leiber, issued a rebuttal stating that, quote, this field should be called the sword and sorcery story, unquote, because he claimed it, quote, accurately describes the points of culture level and supernatural element, unquote, as well as being useful in distinguishing these stories from other popular pulp genres. All right. So automatically, right from the start of the revival of this genre, there's like an argument over what to call it. In <laughs> So in the mid-1960s, a trio of writers, Lynn Carter, L. Sprague de Camp, and John Jakes, formed the Swordsmen and Sorcerers Guild, a.k.a. SAGA, S-A-G-A for short. Originally, it was a group of drinking buddies, and they published an anthology called Flashing Swords, with an exclamation point. Flashing Swords! <laughs> Annually, from 1973 to 1981. So that's pretty much the revival era in print of the sword and sorcery genre. From 1974 to 1981, they convinced the World Science Fiction Society to let them give a Gandalf Award to fantasy authors at the World Science Fiction Convention. And despite the name Swordsman and Sorcerer's Guild, one of the early members was a woman, Andrea Norton. And by the time they dissolved in the 1980s, a third of them were women. In 1970, Liber's Swords and Deviltry is published. That year, Marvel Comics also starts publishing Conan the Barbarian comics. In 1972, Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnibony, however you say it, is published. In October 4th, 1980, a favorite of mine when I was a kid, Sunday morning cartoon Thundar the Barbarian debuts, and it runs for two seasons. March 16th of 1982, Conan the Barbarian starring Arnold Schwarzenegger is released in Spain. But then April 30th of 1982, The Sword and the Sorcerer is released worldwide. So it becomes the first real sword and sorcery in the sword and sorcery boom of the 80s uh, on film. And then in May 14th, 1982, Conan the Barbarian is released in the U.S. Folks will be interested to know that even though there is this uh, new resurgence of this sword and sorcery genre, originally when Oliver Stone approached the script, he actually planned to rewrite it as a post-apocalyptic future story where Conan is battling against uh, mutants and defective clones and things like that. And fortunately, John Milius, who was hired to direct by Dino De Laurentiis, decided, nope, we're going to do this as a medieval, much more faithful adaptation. And thanks to that, it made the budget significantly smaller. They managed to make Conan the Barbarian on a $20 million budget. It ended up grossing about $68 million with its first release. And then, of course, with home video, since this is now a cult film, it's up to $300 million. So really successful, deciding to make it a more faithful film. Of course, this character, a lot of people draw connections between Conan and Genghis Khan, and I'm sure we'll get into that when we talk about the film. But um, some some of the fun things that come with a story of this level of mayhem is uh, how do you handle the special effects? And John Milius was really determined not to use too much computer-generated effects or animation but instead built everything mechanically. 
And we can discuss later whether we think that approach ultimately wins out. But one one of the highlights is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, did all of his own stunts. He spent 18 months preparing for the role, learning horseback riding and sword fighting and, you know, continuing to build up his body. But of course, the problem was there could be no body double for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who could approximate his size and muscularity. So so he did all of his own stunts, including some of the scenes where he's running from the wild dogs, which were apparently really vicious. And the trainers were ripped apart <laughs> in some instances. And there are outtakes where Arnold is really fearing for his life as he's running away from them, which, uh, again, is a trait drawn from Genghis Khan, famously afraid of dogs. Of course, balanced on, on the other side, Arnold as the ultimate hero, we have also the ultimate villain. James Earl Jones, in an interview, explained why he took the role. He had a background in television and mostly theater. He was really just starting to break into film with Star Wars. And he said that he took the role of Thulsa Doom because he viewed him as a prehistoric Darth Vader. And he knew at the time that Conan the Barbarian would be a very important film, not something the critics would like and not something he was sure audiences would come see. <laughs> but he believed that it was continuing the work that Star Wars had started of creating this epic adventure that James Earl Jones believed all people were hungry for. Only other note about production, this is something I didn't know until I started digging into this, which was... At the time that they were filming this in Spain, there was a an attempted coup that the Civil War almost restarted at the time that they were filming. And they were actually delayed a couple, a couple days because there were tanks rolling through the streets and the authorities in Spain didn't really feel great about having this film crew nearby that had all these swords and explosives and everything that they had to make the effects. What's funny about that is they were originally scheduled to to shoot in Yugoslavia and, <laughs> and, and there was, there was an ongoing revolution going on there. So they decided, no, let's go shoot someplace safe, like Spain. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of notes, uh, production notes also that I wanted to say Ed Pressman and Ed Summer were the producers behind this. And they had originally hired Roy Thomas from Marvel, but after reading the script for platoon, they chose Oliver Stone to write the script but thank God that didn't happen because, as he said, he wanted it to be post-apocalyptic. There was like armies of pigmen and shit, you know. <laughs> um, so they they also wanted Ridley Scott to direct, and Ridley turned them down. And that's when they said, "Screw it, let's just sell this package to Dino De Laurentiis." And so when Dino came on, he decided that the script was too violent, so he was gonna have John Melius rewrite it. Hold on. Dino De Laurentiis said that it was too violent? Yes. God. Dino De Laurentiis said it was too violent. He, no, but the, what I find hilarious is he got the guy, he got John Melius, who is, like, if you've ever seen The Big Lebowski. Yes. John Goodman's character is based on John Melius, right? So he's this complete macho, like, rote, Dirty Harry, wrote Rambo, you know, all of that stuff, you know. And he's the guy Dino decided to bring in to tone it down. <laughs> 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 Melius had never read Conan before. 
but he had a Viking sword and was very into Vikings and he was known as Viking man. And that was his surfer name. He was a surfer. <laughs> he recruited his champion surfer buddy, Jerry Lopez known as Mr. Pipeline, you know, the main guy in surfing at that time to play Subutai in this. And then also he had seen all that jazz with Sandal Bergman and said that if there's ever been a Valkyrie on earth, it's that woman. So that's why he <laughs> wanted her for this. One last thing, the movie received an X rating three times before they submitted a fourth cut of it and it got it down to an R. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, uh, can I just note Sandal Bergman, her background was all in musical theater, which is insane given how convincing she is with the sword. Most of them aren't actors, right? You got one bodybuilder, one surfer, one um dancer, you know, those are the main the main characters of the good guys. But I want to bring Tank in here now. He's the one that when we were doing sword and sorcery stuff, he was all about jumping on doing the Conan films. So Tank, what are your thoughts about Conan the Barbarian? Uh shit rules. I mean, it's basically <laughs> the like it the, the the first film, like just the opening 25 minutes is just hit after hit after hit. Like you open this film with a bunch of marauders coming up over a hill. They're decked out on these sick horses with like foxtails and shit hanging off. There's one dude running with like two Rottweilers and the Rottweilers have helmets on. Let's go. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I like it. It, it starts with that, that score. It's uh, Basil Poldoris is the guy. I spin this score all the time. Uh, it was hard to find for a long time. It was out of print. Now you can yeah. find it on YouTube. I accidentally played that instead of the movie when I was trying to watch the movie. <laughs> so, and then it opens with a Nietzsche quote. I didn't remember that it started with a Nietzsche quote, which just shows the last time I saw this, I think I must have still been really into Nietzsche, like really into it. <laughs> so it probably just didn't face me. I'm like, of course it starts with the Nietzsche quote. And then this time I, I, I was like, well, that's interesting. That's a choice. <laughs> Yeah, it's a choice, <laughs> but fitting. It absolutely fits the it, film. It's almost an accident because none of these people, none of them were Conan fans, right? The only person that was a Conan fan was was uh, George Lopez, or sorry, uh, Jerry Lopez, not George Lopez. <laughs> George Jerry, Lopez. Jerry now, Lopez. Twist. <laughs> Jerry Lopez was a fan of Conan, but he was the only one. But because they were all into the same thing, Milis was into historical fiction and Genghis Khan and Nietzsche and stuff like that. All the same stuff that Howard was into. They managed to get it right, like almost accidentally, you know. Um, and then, yeah, as Tank mentioned, Balsa Doom's men come in and they kill everyone. They kill his mother and, you know, just cut him off. He's sold into slavery as a child. And he's taken to work the wheel of pain. They also don't explain what that wheel powers. It's like, is this is is this like an old timey power plant or what's going on here? All you know is it's just a <laughs> montage to show us like uh, Conan bulking up from like child to teenager to now adult. And by the end of it, he's just rocking this thing by himself. So it is a grain mill. They don't say that in the film. And in fact, originally it was just the wheel of pain. 
Like, that's the way it was written. And then, like, the guy who was building it was like, well, this thing should actually do something. You yeah. know? So he put in the, the grain milling stones. And he, so, like, it it crushes grain. That's what it's for. You know? <laughs> but it's really the wheel of grain. It's the <laughs> wheel, the wheel of grain. grain. <laughs> All right. And yeah, then, but, you know, you got to say it hardcore. Be like, wheel of grain, you know. <laughs> But it does have that trans montage transition through all the seasons. And then finally, when Schwarzenegger looks up and like people go crazy because he was like a big star at that moment, you know, at this point in the film, we're probably almost 20 minutes in and he still has not spoken. <laughs> so it's like one of the things I love so much about this film is that they do so much character building before the character even speaks. It's amazing. Well, I think that is one of the reasons that Schwarzenegger succeeded as an actor because, you know, he had this thick accent and and they decided or he decided or his agent decided, whoever it was, that he play roles where he didn't have to speak, you know, and a lot of bodybuilders or people that come to acting from other fields, pro wrestlers, rock stars, whatever, they tend to be terrible, at least the first 10 times out or something like that but he took roles like this <laughs> yeah. in the terminator and stuff like that where he has to say one line here and one line there just I enough to get him through the movie yeah. yeah i i i think it's akin to kind of like if you look at the road warrior and the way like basically mad max doesn't it maybe has like what like 10 lines through that whole film but you understand that story no matter you you can literally watch the road warrior without sound and you know what's happening and that's kind of the same thing that happens in this movie where you don't really need a lot of script and words just watch the action on screen to understand what's happening and schwarzenegger comes off kind of the same way of like uh kane hodder in the jason movies or gunner hansen his leatherface in texas chancel where a lot of what he's doing is emoting with his body and it's his physical you know presence and it's his body language that carries himself as a character and you know who he is and what he's doing yeah i feel the same way about action movies in general a lot of really great action movies don't have a lot of dialogue and they don't really need it like i think of like dread Dread is mm -hmm. another great example um, of an action film with very little dialogue and it doesn't really need it. You know, I think one of the first lines we actually hear him say in this movie is the Genghis Khan line, you know, yes, crash enemies, <laughs> Conan, what is best in life? I had forgotten that there was a guy who comes before him who gets it wrong. Um, and I actually liked that guy's answer of like the open step. I was like, oh, that's so poetic. <laughs> okay, history lesson. This is a Genghis Khan quote. And the the person that first answers is the supposedly the historical Subutai. Subutai's name was taken for uh, the Jerry Lopez character. But Genghis Khan asked this and Subutai says, you know, the wind on the steps, you know, open plane, you know, a hawk on your wrist or something like that. I don't know, whatever. And then he's like, wrong <laughs> to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you and to hear the lamentations of their women. 
So yeah. <laughs> Here's the, the limitations gang- of the women. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about the original Genghis Khan quote though is that he also adds like ride their horses. Like <laughs> there's like that just that's the one thing that's missing from the Conan version. But ride their horses was is a fun one too. To get to this point where he makes the speech, we saw him as a child. He gets sold as a slave to a guy to become a, a gladiator. And Conan doesn't really understand what's happening. He just gets chucked in a pit with some dude that has fangs. And he's just really confused <laughs> for the first 30 seconds. And then my man goes off. Like, he instantly understands what this is. And you get a montage of him, which in just cool different sets of armors, all sorts of different daggers, blades, like weird knife hand things. And he is fucking <laughs> everybody up. And that that becomes like his whole deal is like he it becomes this warrior, this fighter, this gladiator, and people start to love him for the first time in his life. Like uh, he's cheered and, and, and Conan starts feeding off of that. And they make this point where he's like, you know, life, death no longer matters. All that matters is, is the crowd. And mm-hmm. and because of his physical ability, he then like learns to read, which I don't know how they teach him how to read, but he's like got a fucking scroll out and he's reading. Um, you know, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> I yeah, love the line they that. say like it's not they didn't say he they taught him how to read, they said they made books available. <laughs> It's a hilarious way to describe what happened. Yes, Andy was introduced to the pleasures of women. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we get to the pleasures of women and and reading, since Tank, you do jujitsu, you're a big wrestling fan, all of that stuff. I need a rating for this fight scene. At least th- we saw a couple of pit fights, but it was mostly a montage. But there was mainly the one with the guy with the sharpened fangs and stuff like that. How would you rate this as far as movie fight scenes go? It was pretty good. I like seeing him get wrist control and trying to work that Kimura there at the beginning. Like when you see him pin that arm back, I was like, hey, Schwarzenegger understands how this works. But then he just starts like dropping bows in the guy's head. I'm like, also very effective. So yeah, I <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the fight yeah. scenes in it. There um there's one later where there's like a, a where uh you, there's some misses. Like you literally see them miss the punch, but overall I really enjoyed the action in this movie and especially the gladiator scenes. I guess they just decide like you know, he's gone as far as he can as a gladiator or something. Whatever, there's nothing we got nothing left for you, so <laughs> let's just set him free at this point, you know? I got the impression that they set him free because they knew he couldn't be trapped there very long. And if they don't set him free, he will just eventually kill them all. Mm. I, they, there was some sort of line about um, like he's been caged too long or something like that. I I read that as kind of threatening. But then they send the dogs after him. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. So Robert E. Howard didn't write how Conan came to get his sword. But in the first Conan book... The, they were collected by Lancer and Ace paperbacks and stuff like that. And they were a mix of stories that Robert E. Howard wrote himself and pastiches that were put together by his successors, L. Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter were the two main ones. And I think de Camp wrote a story that he claimed was based on Robert E. Howard's notes called the thing in the crypt where he breaks into a crypt or, and, and, or stumbles across this crypt and there's a skeleton and the skeleton has like a sword and he takes the sword. Now in the story, if I remember right, I've read it decades ago at this point, the skeleton actually comes to life and he has to 
fight this undead skeleton and you know he gets the sword and leaves with the sword and all that and that's the thing in the crypt was the skeleton in this you think it's gonna happen right this the the hand moves and the but i liked that they didn't do it yet like it would it would have been too early to start like the supernatural yeah yeah um so it's like really in the next encounter where we get the supernatural where he he's wandering and he finally comes across this hut and there's this hot witch because all women are hot in sword and sorcery uh, <laughs> movies and stuff. I guess she was going to like turn him into slave or something. I don't know. Again, you know, for her, like it, she like seduces him, but then goes all like, you know, wolfy on him. You know, <laughs> Like they call her the wolf witch in the script. Like, I don't know that she looked like a wolf, but she definitely looked like a freaky monster, you know? And uh, while they're getting yeah. it on, he has to like throw her into the fire. <laughs> so we learn straight up sorcery is almost always bad in sword and sorcery. The good guy always carries a sword. The bad guy always uses magic. He meets Subatai, her previous victim or whatever, chained up. And this is where Jerry Lopez comes in. And Jerry Lopez, as I mentioned before, he was one of the first people to surf the bonsai pipeline. You know, he's Hawaiian and uh, he's actually um, mixed ethnicity, but he's from Hawaii. And that's like where the, the waves break and there's that perfect tube. Surfing in, had always been on top of the wave before him. And then in the the Jerry Lopez era was the surfing through the wave. So I've always thought that um, the Patrick Swayze character in Point Break was based on him because he's the guy that turns surfing into the Zen kind of thing. Mm. The philosophical part that they bring out in that movie. He, I think that's why Melius wanted him for Subatai because he's like the philosopher type, you know, Zen philosophy type guy you know like one of the first conversations they have after they escape is like about god yeah. the god I, I love the line so what gods do you pray to yeah. <laughs> just like very casual <laughs> just you know and then there's a little bit of one-upmanship but um yeah i thought that scene was so great Krom is mighty you know <laughs> <laughs> but then is just like well you know my god is the sky your god lives under the sky so my god yeah. is better <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then they're friends forever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's shortly after that they go to the city and mm -hmm. you know, sort of like, oh, there's no wind here. Why does it smell? Arnold punches a camel. Punches a camel. <laughs> Gratuitous mm -hmm. camel punching isn't a necessity in this. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, he punches a camel. <laughs> <laughs> which becomes important later on. We'll talk about that again. Yes. We'll come back yep. to camel punching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll revisit that. <laughs> but um, that is about as humorous as this movie gets. Melius was really uh, loath to do too much, um, you know, comic relief. In fact, right here is where there was a scene where Melius makes a cameo in the film selling them lizard on a stick. Yes. So they okay. he sells a lizard on a stick. He and he him cut himself out of the film because he he thought that the, it just tonally didn't match and stuff like that. So 
hats off to him because I don't think a lot of people would have the restraint to cut their one part out of their own movie. I think we can jump to this idea that they're going to raid the tower. Right? Yeah. yeah. This is where they meet an actual thief. Valeria. Valeria was one of the characters from Howard's Conan series, but Valeria doesn't appear at this stage of Conan's life. She's much later and she's like more of a pirate. But anyway, this one's a thief. She joins up with them almost immediately. The the three of them become a team and they're going to scale this tower. It's reminiscent of a couple of different Conan stories. The Tower of the Elephant. Um, there was another one, the one where he fights the giant ape, but I forget what that was called. Um, anyway, Rogues in the House. Rogues in the House. I think those are the two stories that this is most like. But they actually, one of the great things about this is they didn't do the Adam West Batman thing where they turned the set on the side and had them like fake like they were going up. They built a real <laughs> tower and they're like, okay, go climb that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, they had three very athletic actors who could who could do that. Once they finally get to the top, I think that's when we get that first line. They say, oh, God, what does that smell like down there? And she says, do you want to live forever? And then this becomes her recurring call or question to Conan. And she has told them that they have to go first because they didn't bring a rope. <laughs> so, yeah, they get down there and... It's clear that our main villain is not going to make an appearance in this scene, but still we are going to get the serpents that we have heard so much about. <laughs> Along with a really creepy cult thing, which this film was made in 1982 um, or filmed in 1981. So sh relatively shortly after the Charles Manson murders. This was still part of a wave of films that were all pretty anti-cult. And this scene is one of the first tastes we get of not just the murderous side that we saw in the opening scene, but also of all these helpless people who have fallen under the spell. Yeah, the 70s, the late 60s and most of the 70s, when the sword and sorcery genre was at its height, cults were a big thing in the popular consciousness. You know, they were going on all the time. And I think Melius specifically mentions Jonestown Massacre, Jim Jones, was his big inspiration for Thulsa Doom's cult. Within a couple of years of it coming out, I'm sure I saw it. I don't know that I was aware of the cults that much yet. I think I had read Helter Skelter, but I wasn't totally aware that there was a lot of cults going on. But nowadays, when I go back and I rewatch this, and I've watched this about a dozen times since then... It's unavoidable. I can't not make that connection in my head. I grew up in a Christian conservative household, so anything that wasn't evangelical Christian was a cult. So, <laughs> <laughs> turns out you were in a cult. Yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> it's like a reverse Uno card. You're like, wait, what the hell? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so they they end up um... killing an amazing. Uh, handmade snake <laughs> yes. giant snake 
it's funny because I was just listening to the what you into about the exotic animals and like I forget who the guest was, but you're talking about he's talking about like if he if he, he doesn't want a giant snake because he'd do something stupid and then like one day just end up dead because like the anaconda would would because he smelled like food, you know. Yeah, that was uh, that was Max Mahler, and yeah, his uh, he had fed one. Of, he had uh, was working with one of his other uh, pets before feeding the snake, and the snake kind of started eyeing him up, and it's like, oh, I forgot to wash my hands, and so the snake just smelled, you know, what was still on his hands, and interpreted him as food, and Ooh. yeah, yeah, not not good, but no, uh, yeah, <laughs> not 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 good. So he was saying something about how he didn't want a really big one, like a like an anaconda or something like that. Yeah, no way. This is even bigger than that. Own an animal that can swallow a whole human body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hard pass on that one. The, 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 I mean, <laughs> you got to draw some lines somewhere, you know. So they escape, and then they're like living the high life, high on the hogs, spending all the the jewels and stuff like that. When they come to the attention of the king and they're brought in to an audience with a king he tells them that Thulsa doom has been a thorn in his side all these years and now his daughter has become a member of the cult and originally they thought they were in trouble but he offers them all this money rubies all his wealth all he wants is them to bring back his daughter so now we get to the real quest of the film it's such a great monologue There comes a time when jewels lose their sparkle, when a throne room becomes a prison, when there's nothing left but a father's love for his child. I mean, that's, I think, what makes Conan work as a film. Silent but strong hero, balanced by these side characters who give these quasi-Shakespearean monologues that weight down the film in a good way, make it feel like... This is all really important. The quest is important. This is a big story. This is not just an oily beautiful godlike man that we're watching destroy things over the course of but it's scenes like this that really help make the stakes of the film work okay balsa dooms mountain uh he gets some one of the cultists to go behind a rock or something with him he knocks him out and takes his uniform this is a standard everybody does this Indiana Jones did it the same year with a Nazi. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> he kar- he karate chops this man. He literally karate chops this man and knocks him out. <laughs> and then dons his robes and then goes up. But it doesn't really fool the, I don't know, the LA Raiders <laughs> linebacker guy and Sven, Sven, the other bodybuilder that's in this. They recognize Sten was unfazed. What's great, like Conan does himself no favors here. Like once he gets the the uh, the coldest outfit on, he just keeps going around like smiling huge at everybody he passes. He's like, eh, eh, and it's like, dude, incognito, like chill, bro. Like try to blend in with the surroundings. Like you're already a a six foot four, two hundred and seventy five pound man that you stick out a little bit. It doesn't help that you're like, oh, I'm the new guy. <laughs> I, you know, I think that he was trying. That was his idea of what a stoned hippie cult would be like. You know, <laughs> I, I think that he thought he was blending. You know? <laughs> uh, he does look baked. I mean, he, he does look pretty baked in that scene. <laughs> anyway, so so my one of my favorite parts is they capture him and then Thulsa Doom. Okay, Thulsa Doom. By the way, 
another example of how they just didn't really read Conan. False of Doom is actually a um, skull-faced villain of Cull, which is the other barbarian hero that uh, Robert E. Howard cre- created. But to be fair, Howard himself, he wrote more Cull stories than he did Conan stories, but Conan became more popular. So he would just take a Cull story, change the names, and it would be a Conan story, you know, because Cull and Conan were so similar. But anyway, Valsa Doom tells him, like, you think you have power because you're strong and you can wield a sword and all that? That's not power. And he, like, orders one of the women to jump to their death. And he's like, that's power, you know? Yeah, flesh is stronger than steel. (laughs) The thing that angered him most is he killed his pet snake and... And the guy, the big bodybuilder dude, he's like, he's like, and, you know, he's been beside himself with grief. You should feel bad. (laughs) Like he he lectures him for like making the other big bodybuilder dude sad because he hand raised the snake. Raised it from an egg. (laughs) (laughs) Shame on you. The guy has like this sad look on his face. (laughs) There's definite uh, Return of the Jedi Rancor Pit Monster Trainer vibes. Like, you yes. know, after, after after Luke kills the Rancor Monster and the trainer guy's like, oh, and like really sad and mournful. And this dude uh, in this movie is the same way where it's just like, how could you kill the 60 foot long snake that we were feeding virgins to? Like, you monster. <laughs> <laughs> so he sentenced him to be crucified on what they call the tree of woe. Yeah. Epic. Which is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like if the tree on the cover of that U2 album was like 10 times bigger and you could like nail a human to it. The Joshua whatever. tree of, of woe. The jo- <laughs> the, which is what I call that album. The Joshua tree of woe. <laughs> hey now. I, yeah. I, I, I would Don't rip cruci- too hard on them. I, I was going to say, I'd rather be crucified than listen to U2. So yeah, let's, <laughs> let, let, let's get up on this tree of woe. All right, now I have seen them on several tours and I am a fan, so be kind. All right, the Tree of Woe. He's on this thing, and this is one of the more badass things he does too. The buzzards start gathering around ready to eat him, you know, and like one gets too close and he just like chops into it. (laughs) (laughs) Kills it by biting it and it falls to the ground. And then spits out the feathers. Spits out the feathers. Yeah. Yeah. We we also get classic Schwarzenegger grunting as he's ripping the thread of this buzzer. So it's like, and, and, and then you see this buzzer drop dead at his feet. And then he's just still chilling there in the sun dying. What I should mention is a ton of shit on this movie was super dangerous. Like they would never do it today. Like when they were in the tower and like one of the guys gets thrown down into that pit, he just landed on a bunch of boxes. Like it, like they just threw a bunch of cardboard, but like, this is something that like backyard wrestling or like, you know, like, like kids making their first movie would do, you know, that. And then this buzzard, they used a real buzzard, right? They used the actual, so like the medic had to come up, you know, I think it was like, they replaced it the last minute with a taxidermied one, but it was still real. So they had to like come up and wash his mouth out with alcohol and stuff like that because like they didn't know what nasty shit this buzzard actually had you know yeah and just speaking of washing your mouth out with alcohol one of the things about this film is the fake blood they had originally mixed it with water but it was so cold when they were out filming that the fake blood was freezing so they had to mix it with vodka 
in order to keep it in its liquid form. And not everyone spat out the fake blood that was like in their mouth or whatever. There was a lot of vodka lost. <laughs> lost yeah. <laughs> in quotations okay so let's get on to the final confrontation here they rescue conan they take him back to the wizard uh he's like we can bring him back but the, you're gonna have to pay a price for it and valeria is like yo whatever just you know get this guy up and so then there's this big storm uh some freaky cgi smoke ghost and uh the thief <laughs> the thief and the valkyrie like fight the the smoke ghost to, to keep conan and then next morning he just kind of wakes up like hungover and he's like oh i'm back yeah part of this ritual they paint conan all his exposed skin with symbols and there was a Japanese movie. I forget what it was. I remember seeing it a long time ago. I want to say it was Kaidan or Kaidan. It can be translated either way. I think that was the movie. I'm not sure. But it was one of these supernatural Japanese ghost story things where they forget to paint the guy's ears. And so the evil spirits can see just two ears floating around and they like ripped his ears off. Ugh. If you've seen that movie, you'll recognize this in that. But yeah. They save his life, and then they go back to rescue the princess. They paint their bodies with this really cool camouflage. It's like grease paint, like, except instead of just being the face, it's like their whole bodies, you know? Okay. They looked so amazing. Let's talk, about, let's talk <laughs> about the fact that they looked like they came straight out of the Hungry Like the Wolf video from Duran Duran. It was the <laughs> 80s. What do you want? And, I mean, and- <laughs> it was the most 80s scene of the whole film. In yeah, my opinion, <laughs> it was it was pretty cool. And Sandal, she is so cat like, like so graceful. And you really see it in this next scene where they're they're like invading the the orgy, the, the orgy, the orgy. The orgy. Yeah. Yeah. The or- well, it's more than an orgy. It's a cannibalistic orgy because they're they're drinking split pea and hand soup. <laughs> and it's literally like just this big giant cauldron of green peas body parts and green stuff yeah <laughs> i i don't know how many orgies you've been to but you know after hour three you you need some carbohydrates you need some proteins and that's where you know hand soup comes in handy so yeah <laughs> it totally makes sense certainly not a great lubricant so no no, no. not good <laughs> It, it it is funny, like because like watching it back on the Blu-ray, I I did take a second. Is that a hand? And then I was like, oh shit, that is a hand. And you see like carved up bodies when they're sneaking in because they're they're like the the henchmen are getting the cauldron, and you see people that are split like cattle. It's like what is happening in this temple? And so you realize that oh yeah, this cult is bad, but now it's like cannibalistic bad, which is which is very very bad. Yeah, but like cannibalistic bad is worse than regular bad. <laughs> yeah, ca- cannibalism at an orgy. You you got people eating nope, other people yeah. and then ah. eating other people. Well, well, what I like is when they're dishing out, they have a giant ladle. They have a giant ladle to dish out the soup. And so one woman is bringing the soup to all the other people. Mm-hmm. And she goes up there and like they, they dish some out to her and she's like, mm, I'm going to keep that piece for myself. Like she reaches mm-hmm. in and takes a hand and starts nibbling on the hand. You know? anyway. This is my favorite body part. <laughs> exactly. Ah. A little snacking on fingers. Yeah, who doesn't like finger foods? This is the scene where we see Thulsa Doom transform into the snake. Yes. Which 
in my memory, this was a much bigger part of the film. And so watching it again, I was like, oh, it's just this like one little scene. <laughs> but it stuck. That's the scene that sticks with me when I think about this. They're they're riding off with the princess. Yeah. And this is when Thulsa Doom, he just has snakes everywhere and he'll just take a snake and turn it into an arrow and sh- he shoots Valeria. Unlike Conan, who, you know, they do all this magic ritual to bring back to life. They like pull this snake out of her and like, oh, well, I guess she's dead. <laughs> I love this death scene. This the line that she says, let me breathe my last breath into your mouth, which is a very romantic sentiment. But the wording is terrible. <laughs> Not if you're a barbarian. Like that's I guess like so. <laughs> that's as sexy as it gets. Well, she gets the she, sounds weird. She gets the Viking funeral, like on land, you know, not the, the boat, but they she gets the pyre and all of that. And now he's pissed, you know? Because Yeah. Yeah. Well well, there there's this great scene that we we, we didn't talk about earlier where like uh, before all this goes down and he, he, you know, they steal the jewel and they get rich. And, and finally like Valeria and Conan are dating or whatever you want to call it. They're, they're together. She tells him the story about like looking for warmth and, you know, passing by other people's tents and seeing people together, but she was always cold and alone. And now she has Conan. Now she's warm and they're together. And then as she dies, you know, with the last breath line, she's also saying like, she's cold and she wants to be warm. And so you, you get this idea that they're really attached. Like this isn't just another one of like, Conan's like, you know, uh, just uh, just a hookup. Like he cares about her. She cares about him. And then we get the funeral pyre scene. And um, yeah, uh, another great uh, Conan line where um, the, the thief guy is like, uh, Conan can't cry. I got to cry for him. And that's. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Like, when that you, that when was a good scene. When your bro is so hard that he can't cry over his dead girlfriend and you come in and you cry for him. That's being a dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's being Definitely. the ultimate dude. I noticed that when Valeria was burned, they had that kind of like weird explosion. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting, I was thinking like, what would cause that explosion? And at first I thought, well, maybe what happened with the witch somehow affected that moment. And then also I was thinking, well, she did kind of make the deal with the devil, like, I don't care what the price is. Please save Conan. So maybe that was also part of that magic. I think it's just part of the Conan world that when women catch on fire, they explode. I mean, that's that's the scientific <laughs> angle I'm going with. It happened yeah. with the way <laughs> women are yeah. magic. So, yeah. Yeah, they just blow up, you know, spontaneously yeah. combust. No one knows what makes women work in this universe. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's written by men. Okay. <laughs> so... Let's just jump to the final confrontation here, because keep in mind, Star Wars came out in 77. ILM was actually hired to do some stuff on this. They did that that weird CGI demons attacking Conan while he was like on the edge of life. This is 82. Between Empire and Return of the Jedi. Between Empire and (laughs) Now, the reason I bring this up is in Empire, we have James Earl Jones' most famous line, Luke, I am your father, right? He, he, he does that whole thing, right? In this, they're on the steps, and James Earl Jones calls him son and keeps saying that, like, to- I am the wellspring from which you flow. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's, it's kind of like the ancient or medieval version of I am your father, right? 
But uh, he tries his Jedi mind trick. You know, he just stares in a, at his eyes and, you know, he t- did this a couple of times. He did it with Conan's mom in the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. and then you think it's going to work for a second or two. And then he's just like, whoo, decapitates him. <laughs> like, and the head goes boom, 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 rolling down the mountain. And then all these people are just like, well, and it's not like they rush him or attack him. They're like, okay. Uh, Show's over, folks. Uh, yeah. Party's uh, over. Uh, time to go home. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like James Earl Jones really carries the film after watching it again. And it's scenes like like this that really you know it feels like a climax it doesn't feel like okay we've had a sequence of battles it really does feel like that final confrontation that you're looking for and i couldn't tell whether conan kills him with his father with the broken father's sword or whether he kills him with his own new sword but i was i was gonna gonna check with the experts on that because he he gets his father like his father's sword is broken in the previous battle scene, and I think he has it with him. But I I don't know if he just there. I wanted the poetic justice. <laughs> that particular sword is super iconic, and I would recognize it if it weren't for the fact that he just swings it so fast and boom, you know. So yeah. I don't know for sure which which sword that is. And they but- unfortunately didn't put too much importance on that. Otherwise, I think they would have made it a point to show which sword that was yeah. used to kill Volsa Doom. That would have been a pretty cool detail for that sure. That would have been a nice cherry on top. And maybe it was, and we just didn't didn't pick up on it. I don't know. So listeners, write in where GC8 podcast, letter G, letter C, number eight podcast at gmail.com and let us know if you think that he killed Volsa Doom with his own sword or the original sword. We pretty much got to wrap it up here. Definitely want to thank Tank for being here. And uh, you can find him at neiltonoone.com and on Instagram at neiltonoone. The podcast is, of course, is called What You Into. Check it out. It is just fascinating. I don't know how he hasn't run out of like hobbies yet. Um, (laughs) There is there are so many. My my, mother, my 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 mother-in-law asked me the same thing and i'm like dude i'm like i don't know we're 100 episodes into this thing that's not slowing down anytime soon <laughs> awesome that's pretty cool all right well until next time this is eric this is johanna this is rosie oh this and- is tank yeah I'm sorry <laughs> i didn't I, I didn't i didn't know i didn't know how it works i'm sorry i'm the guest <laughs> signing off peace All right, all right. <laughs> uh, no, it's he's no Phil Collins. I'll give you that. <laughs>